Hi, this is Graham Keane. Welcome to this podcast about zest, by which I mean positivity, drive, energy, hope, optimism, motivation, persistence, resilience. Some zest strikes us as being extroverted. Some of it is quiet. Some of it is about outward excitement and some of it is about calm, centred, certainty and knowledge. Some is highly resilient and will push through whatever adverse set of circumstances we confront it with. Some is more fragile. But the thing about zest is that it is always positive. It's always highly motivated. It always expects positive outcomes. Now, in the title to the blog on this subject, I talk about it relating to high-performance mindsets in individuals and cultures that deliver. Zest is very characteristic of the most successful high-performance cultures. When you think about the Googles of this world, Zest is very much at the heart of of what they do. And in order for an organisation to have a Zest culture, all that's required, as with any, any culture, is that all of the individuals within it adhere to the same mindset, the same values, the same sets of behaviours. Not identical, but all falling within the general classification, of, if you like, of zest. So positive, optimistic, thoughtful, as in taking care of each, of each other. It's a very emotionally intelligent culture, a zest culture. And for it to really take hold in a culture, it needs to be pretty much universal throughout all of the people that are there. I have spent 20 years or more now working with organisations on culture, and I've seen quite a lot of places where uh, leadership is concerned to deliver one of the several versions of a zest-based culture only to see it undermined by a handful of dissident individuals who are high influencers within the organisation and who either tacitly or overtly oppose the culture. And it only takes a handful particularly if they're in senior positions, positions of high visibility and high authority. It only takes a few of them to undermine the general culture. You see, when we undertake metrics in an organisation that's that's perhaps new to us, and we look at what every individual in the organisation thinks should be done in terms of shifting the culture from where it is to where it needs to be in order for that organisation to achieve its goals. One of the, the things that we find is that there's, there's always pretty broad consensus about what is required. And increasingly, that broad consensus is that the organisation should move further towards cultures that are emotionally intelligent, that are caring, responsible, emancipated, high-energy, driven, focused, positive, placing emphasis and important on performance and on results, 
and also placing emphasis and importance upon the individual and making sure that their well-being is high and that their happiness is promoted by the organization's culture because people increasingly understand the relationship between happy people and high-performing companies. So when we when we look at, at, at a company, we quite often find that there's a broad consensus about the way it should go. And very often I find that there are key individuals who, although they think it's a very good idea for the organization to move in that direction, they're not wholly themselves committed to delivering it within themselves. And that may be because of one of several reasons. And what I thought might be interesting is to give you some observations about the sort of people that I've seen who can stand between you and your cultural goals as an organisation if you're looking to move towards Zest. They don't only stand between your organisation and its goals, they actually have a very bad impact on some of the people in the organisation, particularly the, the people who are perhaps uncertain themselves. Those people that we can convince and get them to come along with Zest are sometimes given permission not to try too hard by the conspicuous dissidents and standing to one side key influencers. So there are five types of unhelpful individuals to be on the lookout for. The first one I call the above-it-alls. So these are often very senior people, not always, but often very senior people, and they only see the need for zest as a culture in people that are junior to themselves. They attach in their own mind some special significance to their own elevated status, their position of authority, and they take it either as proof that they're already pretty damn good and don't need to be improved, or else they see it as giving them a buy. In other words, they, they believe that they are exempt. This sort of us and them thinking is, is fortunately dying out now, just like all the other dodos, because people increasingly will not tolerate it. And what these individuals don't get is that although they very often have the power and the authority in an organisation, they're shooting themselves in the foot because the sort of culture that they preside over is not well received nowadays and people who are capable of moving on sooner or later will move on. They'll vote with their feet. Okay, and the second I call the know-it-all. These are people who actually know quite a lot about cultural change or at least are tasked with responsibility for cultural change or cultural issues within an organisation, not necessarily the same thing. So what happens to them is that sometimes they don't grasp quickly enough that they are actually failing to implement the knowledge that they possess. It's extraordinary how people who are expert and responsible come sometimes miss the fact that they too are part of the situation that needs a solution. So very often well-meaning, quite often feeling threatened actually in in some way they are discomforted by the fact that you know the knowledge that they had and the responsibility that they have for 
a cultural climate in an organization which made them feel kind of special in an influential, important place. Now that's being disseminated to everybody. And that can, if somebody's not feeling particularly great about themselves at the moment, that can be quite tough to bear. And they weren't consciously, of course, they're not consciously trying to be obstructive, but unconsciously that uncertainty can manifest as a slowness to get with the program, with using knowledge as power, rather than something you should give, it's something that you should gain and protect. And, and that insecurity sometimes will be, will be fed and made worse when other people start picking up the ideas and start actually being better at delivering it than they, the previous supposed experts themselves are. So these guys are not bad guys. These are people who need our understanding, they need our empathy, and they need some reassurance because, you know what, they were in that role for a good reason, and we need their help. We need them to help us with the with the cultural change that we're trying to bring about. So Nodal is perhaps a very unkind label for a very challenging situation. Okay, third one, a bit more black and white. These are the I'm all right jacks. These are people who actually are, are no longer engaged with the long-term results of the organization because they've not got long to go. They may very well be on some sort of remuneration package, whether it's share options or shares that have vested over the last couple of years or a bonus or a profit share, some sort of remuneration package, which means that how much they earn is tied to the profits of the organization. So they become very much motivated by short-term self-interest. If the company makes X million pounds profit this year, that means I will earn Y. And for every 100,000 pounds that we spend on cultural initiatives, I am going to suffer because the benefits of those cultural initiatives are unlikely to hit profits until after I have left the organization or until after the financial benefit I'm looking at has vested. Okay, so they're sacrificing the long-term results of the organization on the altar of their own personal short-term self-interest. And, you know, it's okay for them because by the time those chickens come home to roost, they'll be gone. Enough said. Actually, it's not enough said. These people are very damaging to an organization and they need to be dealt with and it's not always easy, but it is the right thing to do. And the fourth type of unhelpful individual is a smiling cynic. One of the more common ones, I meet a lot of smiling cynics actually quite often in sales teams where people know that um, zest is how you're supposed to be, particularly if you're in sales or in a senior leadership role, and so they wear the zest mask, but when it comes down to taking decisions, responding to other people's initiatives, how they interact with other people, particularly the, the uh, people they have authority over, then these guys are not actually delivering a zest culture in their own way of being. This is a classic case of people who talk the talk, but simply do not walk the walk. They think they're fooling us, they think they're clever, they think they know how to play the game, and that they can hide their insecurity or negativity or pessimism, and we won't see it. They think that they're fooling us, but you know and I know they absolutely are not. And what's really interesting is that they know that too.
So it's really important that the smiling cynics get given the opportunity to achieve the positivity, optimism, drive, emotional intelligence that they know is what's required. So they need some special understanding and they need some serious attention. And then the fifth classification of people who get in the way of positive zest cultures are what I call the good enoughs. These people are being fooled by their own success and they can't quite explain why they find their own success so unfulfilling. These people actually reject positivity. They reject optimism. They reject grace in their interactions with others. They, in other words, they reject the importance of creating positive emotion in other people when you interact with them, if you want to have an influence with them. Why do they do it? Because they've always operated that way and they're so highly talented that they have managed to achieve really good results. They regard that success as proof that the benefits of zest are a fiction. They, they reject them. They, they refuse sometimes even to consider the huge amount of evidence which has been accumulated in recent years about the relationship between happiness and positivity and profitability because they have found a way of making it work which is based on negative motivation, being demanding, being judgmental, being tough on people rather than demanding a lot of people but demanding it with love rather than with threats. These guys are flat earthers, frankly. They have not kept up to date with modern understanding of human dynamics within an organization of basic psychology. And what they fail to realize is how much better they would be, how much more successful even than they would be if they tried the other way. I will always remember one of these guys who was uh, one of the senior management team of a new client of mine. This is a global organization with an amazingly high reputation for the quality of their minds. And as I was beginning the introductory program for a big intervention outside the UK, this guy challenged me in front of everybody else in the room. There were about 20 people in the room and he challenged me by basically saying, this is how much I earn and he named a very big number, which is a seven-figure income. This is how much the other people in the room, something quite similar, earn. And when we do all that, what have you got to teach us? I remember being excited by the opportunity to tell him the answer because I'd met him a couple of times and I knew he needed to hear it. So I told him that I would be happy to answer that question one-on-one, -on -one, but he wouldn't want me to answer it in front of everybody else. You know, he was a brave and tough guy, hugely capable man. I'm actually a massive fan of him nowadays. And he said, uh, no, 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 it's okay. I brought it up, let's hear the answer. And I said, okay, uh, you are a man who is brighter than everybody else in the room and you find us all slow. You are frustrated by how easy things are for you and how difficult they seem to be for other people. We don't think quickly enough for you, so you're constantly bored by us and challenged. And you are constantly amazed by a role which you find really easy, everybody else says is terribly difficult. But despite all that, you are deeply dissatisfied. You're unhappy. You're frustrated. 
And the reason for that is because you know you've let yourself down. You're doing this job on a, on a local geography board and you know damn well that you're good enough to be sitting on the main board of the global organization, if not actually, in fact, leading the whole global operation, because you're that good. And you don't really understand why you're not getting on any further. And I can tell you exactly why it is. It's because of the mindset that drove you to ask the question that you just asked me in that particular way, at that particular time, as a way to try and cover your own securities. So that's what I can teach you. And you know what, to this man's enormous credit, this is why I'm such a fan, he looked at me for about 10 seconds and then he said, fair enough, please carry on. So the good enoughs are um, often people who are confused by their own dissatisfaction with life because they haven't got the point that what makes us feel good about ourselves is not how well we're doing compared to other people, but how well we are doing compared to what we personally are truly capable of. So if you're listening to this, if you happen to be listening to this, you'll know full well how who you are, and um, I've heard about what's happened to you since, and congratulations, it's brilliant, most pleased. Okay, so back to the podcast. Tom Peters came up with a, a model, which many of you will have heard me talk about before, talking about how to classify people in terms of whether they're with the program or against it, whether they're positive or negative, whether they're high profile or low profile. And these these five types that I've just gone through, he would call he would call terrorists. It's not a word you can use nowadays um, in the context of of business. It's become too emotionally charged. So I like to talk about uh, about dissidents and what he said impressed me the first time I heard it 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and I have used it to help clients ever since because it's massively powerful. He says two things. He says, first of all, if your investment is limited, focus it on the dissidents because when you turn around a dissident, you not only bring them back into the fold, but also their followers. And because these guys tend to be charismatic, um, that will be bringing some really good people back online in terms of joining the Zest. And of course, what we know nowadays, subsequent to when he said this, which was largely an intuitive and observational thing, what we now know is that the reason that releases potential in the organization is because when somebody goes from having a sort of negative mindset to having a positive, a Zest mindset, they default to high performance much more often. So their contribution to an organization goes massively through the roof, whether you're talking about productivity or decision-making or whatever. So he says, spend the money on there because there's a high return. And then there will often be a small group of people amongst the dissidents who refuse to change. And what you have to do with them is you have to move them on. You have to counsel them out. You have to not reassign them, not the promote them out of harm's way. You have to find a way, humanely, of getting them out of the organisation into another role. Because so long as they are there, they are doing damage. Now, this is not a philosophical position. This is hard-nosed evidence-based advice. I've had many client companies balk at this, stop short of moving on, moving out, high-profile individual contributors and or leaders 
who are adding a lot of value because they've been afraid of the loss of the individual contribution, they've been afraid of the disruption, they have been concerned about criticism they might get from other stakeholders in the organisation. They have been too conservative to strike while the iron is hot. And those organisations have sometimes done okay and sometimes not done well at all. Um, and sometimes they've done okay. But you know what? They have always fallen short of what they wanted to achieve for reasons that I'm going to explain in a minute. I've also got clients who have been very courageous, have identified the dissidents in high-profile positions that need to be changed, have offered them every opportunity, interventions, including retaining me to do so, to get people to change, and have been left with the, if you like, the, the hardcore people who do not want to change personally. And they have acted decisively and courageously to actually move those people on. I have to say that people sometimes misunderstand what it is to be a consultant that uses positive psychology. They expect me to be a bit pink and fluffy. Hand on heart, I have more conversations with leadership teams and chief executives in particular where I'm counselling them to terminate somebody than I do where I am asking them to save somebody. I have both, but it's slightly more of the former. Now, the guy that I'm thinking of now who asked me to work with his board ended up actually replacing just under half of that board. And he had been targeted with delivering a particular set of financial outcomes over a three-year period. And he, not just because of this, but because of everything else he did, massively, massively talented chief executive who continues to do incredibly well. Um, but he delivered the goal that he'd been asked to deliver in three years in just over two. So that's the difference, you know, getting it done and done more quickly than you're expecting to, or never quite getting there. So why is it? Why is it? I hear you asking. <laughs> why is it that if you don't move people on who are really recalcitrant dissidents, it, it damages? Well, many of you will find this obvious, so you know, forgive me for spelling it out. In my own personal experience, I have always observed the following. I've never seen a meaningful exception, okay? So the first reason why I think it's appropriate and right to, to advise people in this way, the first thing is that a leader's primary responsibility, the leadership team's primary responsibility, is for the greater good, for the good of all employees, all shareholders, and other stakeholders, okay? So if you have a small number of people whose presence actually acts against those interests, one's duty is clear. The second thing is actually... It's better for the individuals concerned. Somebody who is a persistent or recalcitrant dissident in one organisation may very well be happier elsewhere and may fit right in somewhere else. Because they may have, you know, their, their opposition to the, you know, what I'm broadly calling the, the, the zest-based culture may partly be from a, a worldview which is to do with balance they want between pessimism and optimism, but it's also quite likely to be informed by a difference of view about the particular strategy or tactics that are being deployed in the organisation. When they go somewhere else, they will become a happier, more enthusiastic contributor that fits well in. So, you know, it's not all bad for them either. Sure, they may go through a period of, you know, taking a while to find somewhere else. That, that does happen. We don't have to be callous about it, but we mustn't let it distract us from doing the greater good. The next reason, of course, is that dissidents in high-profile positions damage the culture. 
they impede the change towards the culture of zest, or any culture for that matter, that you have identified as being right for the business. And in opposing a zest culture, which means promoting one that is more negative, they will be harming staff engagement. You know, staff disengage from negative leadership styles. They will not volunteer discretionary effort towards somebody in authority who's trying to manage them in a negative way. And so the bottom line is that cultural dissidents damage financial results. The evidence for that is overwhelming. So it means it's pretty clear that we need to face up to it. And the final reason why we have to do something about this, if you're a member of a leadership team or the leader, is that everybody in the organisation is watching you. They know who the people who are on board and uh, you know singing from the same hymn sheet as the one that you are advocating within the organisation. They know who they are and they know who the dissidents are as well. And if you are seen to tolerate dissidents, you know, people will see that. People are really, really smart about this stuff. And it might very well lead them to question your leadership, question your decisiveness, your commitment. It may indeed lead them to conclude that you're not serious about zest as a culture. They're unlikely to believe you that you're serious about it. They're unlikely to believe that it's important to you that they, as a body, adopt zest if they see you conspicuously tolerating high influences that reject it. And when you do that, in their eyes, it legitimises it so that dissidents will spread because the people who are inclined to be opposed to it will be given consent by leadership's tolerance for other dissidents. So it's really important to be tough-minded and strong about this. And leadership has many benefits, <laughs> huge benefits. It also has some, uh, some duties and responsibilities that are less comfortable to deal with. If you're interested about the... You know, the link between personal performance, corporate performance and zest. Please take a look at my blog on the insights page on grahamkeen.com. Two major factors I'll summarise for you quickly. Firstly, zest is characteristic of people whose default emotional states are positive. Happiness, enjoyment, interest, love and so on. When we're in states like that, our brains function optimally. The balance between the fast and slow thinking systems in our brain is just right when that's happening. All parts of our brain are functioning. However, when we get into negative states like apprehension or anger, sadness or frustration, then the limbic system takes over and actually closes down the prefrontal cortex. The amygdala in particular closes down the prefrontal cortex, which is where a lot of our higher functions operate, and specifically where the rational brain, the slow-thinking brain, operates, and it leaves us in the hand of our reflex brain, our reptilian brain and our early mammalian brain. And what that means is that, you know, many seriously important faculties of the brain simply cease to function when we get above tipping point with one of those negative emotions. So creativity, emotional intelligence, analytical reasoning skills and motivation are all actually turned down and in some cases actually switched off. And importantly, our resilience is undermined. The thing about resilience is that resilience is constantly built when we're in a positive emotional state. So, you know, Zest-based cultures, zest-functioning individuals are more resilient than the rest. You know, and the, the impact over time of all these things manifests as, you know, longer life, more health, more success, better relationships, greater well-being. So that's the, the first thing in terms of 
you know, personally, defaulting to positive states delivers more happiness, positivity, again, in a, like a virtuous circle, and success. Corporately, zest cultures out, outperform, if, whether you're talking about revenue or profitability, shareholder value growth, talent attraction, leadership effectiveness, employee engagement, staff churn, nimbleness with change, all of these factors are driven by zest-based cultures, are maximized, optimized in zest-based cultures. And I think you can see with a bit of thought how they reinforce each other and feed off each other. And you get these wonderful interlinked virtuous circles of, oh, I don't know, positive leadership style, creating a positive culture and increasing engagement, releasing discretionary effort going round and round in a positive virtual circle, driving the organization towards increased profitability as it goes forward. Lots of little circles like that going on in the organization. So a zest culture, a zest mindset is at the heart of creating these two holy grails, if you like. And they are, in personal life, greater happiness, more well-being and increased success. And on the corporate side, nimbleness with change, better financial performance, greater growth. And those two things, if you're in a leadership role, feed off each other. Your personal success and your corporate success feeding off each other in another virtuous circle, which actually delivers two really important personal benefits that I I should talk more about that than I do. And just to mention them quickly, one is clearly that's going to deliver to an individual more opportunities for financial freedom, as well as happiness and well-being. It delivers a standard of living that many of us aspire towards. And importantly, it also gives us the ability to make a bigger impact on the world, to make a bigger difference, or as Steve Jobs calls it, to make a dent in the universe. It gives us a bigger opportunity to do something of meaning, something which is which is useful and valuable. So in closing, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope there's some ideas in there which you find useful. I look forward to talking to you next time. And I want to wish you every success with everything you're working to achieve. <laughs>